Welcome along to the latest episode of the Kielder Observatory podcast. I'm Ian Brannan. Once again, I'll be joined by Director of Astronomy at Kielder Observatory, Dan Pye. And our special guest in this episode is Lauren Napier from Northumbria University, who's somewhat an expert in the field of space law. We're not as, as excitingly forward as science fiction wants us to be, but... But in the in the chance that we do come to you know Star Wars, Star Trek, and name your favorite show, uh, pick your poison here, then perhaps the best way is to hopefully be able to find ways to communicate with each other first, if we can communicate with each other. So what happens if we do encounter little green men? Who will own space or the planets? Never thought about that, but there's also more to it as well. Of course, there are many satellites. What are the rules and regulations? And who is responsible for things going wrong, even around our own orbit? And how do we keep our dark skies dark? Many questions to answer from Lauren Napier in this podcast. First of all, though, we're going to update you on what's happening at Kielder Observatory and what's happening in the night sky as well. Um, We're heading, of course, into the summer time now and and the uh, shortest night, longest day. So that makes things a little trickier than probably you would like for uh, astronomy. But there are plenty of things that you can see in the night sky. Dan Pye is with us, Director of Astronomy at Kielder Observatory. And Dan, one of your favourite things to look out for, you don't really need a, a telescope or binoculars even, just the naked eye for noctilucent clouds. Noxilucent cloud is, is is absolutely the the thing to be looking out for right now. We still haven't seen our first ones this year, not at the observatory anyway. Um, but fingers crossed, they 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 they'll start to appear over the next the next month. We also have um, Venus reaches its greatest eastern elongation in June. So this means it's going to be the furthest distance above the horizon in the evening sky. So a really good time to 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 get out and have a look at Venus. And if you look at it through um, a small telescope, you'll be able to see that it does in fact do what the moon does. It it changes phases. So at the moment, I think it looks like a little rugby ball. Um, as opposed to just a little point of light. And um, and that's because it's an inferior planet, so it's closer to the sun than we are, and therefore it's reflecting light back towards the sun, away from us, so we only see a certain proportion of it at different times of year. And I, I, I love Venus, because it's super, super bright. It is the brightest of the stars in the night sky. Some people call it the evening star, or the morning, uh, the morning star, because, of course, sometimes we see it in the morning when it's on the other side of the sun. Um, so, yeah, look out for that. Venus is uh, is the highlight. I'd say that's the highlight of June, really. Oh, this one's the book moon, of course. Yeah, so the Native Americans called this the uh, the book moon because the, the male book deer would begin to throw their new antlers at this time of year. So, uh, sorry, grow them, not throw them. Not throw them. <laughs> grow them. <laughs> um, they do throw them at some point as well, though, but they kind of like, when they throw them, they kind of shake them off and then their antlers fall off and they leave them behind. And then they, they, I don't know if they grow some new ones. I don't really know much about um, deer. That's me exhausted the amount of uh, deer knowledge that I have. Uh, oh dear. Um, and when is this? When are we looking for this supermoon? Uh, so, Book Moon is 3rd of July, so just into the beginning of July. Some people call it the Thunder Moon as well, which I, I prefer the name Thunder Moon. I think that sounds like something out of a, I don't know, a Thor or something. Yeah, the Thunder Moon. <laughs> 
the latest in the uh, in the Marvel trilogies. Um, you've also been doing something different at Kielder Castle and trialling out taking the, uh, the the planetarium dome to Kielder Castle to well to bring really uh, astronomy down the hill uh, for people to to get involved, especially on these light summer nights as well. Uh, you can show off some constellations in the dome. Just tell us all about that and how that's been working. So Kielder Castle is an amazing location. It used to be the uh, I think it was the the, the retreat, his, his little uh, retreat for um, the Duke of Northumberland. And uh, it's uh, beautiful looking on the outside, kind of castle looking. <laughs> and then on the inside, we're going to uh, put one of our inflatable domes. Now, our inflatable domes, they're, they're incredible. Uh, the, the, the technology that we use is, is an incredible piece of really high quality, really um, high definition projection equipment that comes from i think it comes from israel which always strikes me as a really bizarre place to construct planetarium but there we are um so that 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 we'll be using inside of our um, inflatable planetarium um and we're doing a, a couple of sample events at the beginning of june and then hopefully we'll be running some uh, some events throughout the summertime there as well um with our planetarium and that's a chance to to experience the dark skies in the summer, because of course it's not going to be uh, completely dark during the summertime, but you can head on in the dome and we can gaze at the universe in the dome. We'll take a, a trip through the, the solar system, look at the different planets, look at the different constellations, how the night sky would look from Kielder um, if it was a nice dark night, and then pick out some key objects and uh, and and also talk about aliens as well, which is a nice, interesting topic, suitable for all ages. This so it's um, kids um, would would probably benefit the best from this. Um, kids from very little all the way through to 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 teenagers. Um, so yeah, that'd be a nice nice uh, little experience for you to get involved with. We also have um, various kids activities through the school holidays as well. They do tend to sell out very quickly when the school holidays start to arrive, when people start booking their holidays in and around Kielder and then start looking for activities. So if that, if you have the intention of booking a kids activity at the observatory, then now is the time to do it while the tickets are still available because you might not get the date that you want. We generally sell out during the summertime um, up to 100% capacity. So um, so I would get nice and early to make sure that you get your spaces on those. A variety of different things, rocket building, um, and, uh, and which is always a, a great task to do. Even if you've done it once, I, I think rocket building is still always a fun thing. We'll be looking at the sun um, and, um, and, and a few other uh, activities dotted around the place as well. Okay, so get online, kielderobservatory.org, and you can see all the different sessions that are available. And looking at it at the time of recording this, at the start of June, there's plenty of availability throughout the course of June, particularly the late night events, the Secret Lives of Stars, Discovering New Worlds, that all starts about nine o'clock. Of course, it will be starting to get dark-ish around then but there are some late night explorer sessions as well which begin at half 11 at night so obviously you will be um, able to see some some darker skies then perhaps um, but get online kieldobservatory.org and book yourself into one of those many sessions that are taking place uh, over the next few weeks and of course further into the summer as well over the school holidays get involved and uh, get booking in advance
the Kielder Observatory podcast. I'm Ian Brannan. Alongside me is Dan Pye, Director of Astronomy at Kielder Observatory. And our guest this month is Lauren Napier, who is a lecturer at Northumbria University, specialising in law. But more specific than that, she specialises in space law. There is such a thing. And in fact, Northumbria University, right here in the northeast, is one of the few places where you can go and study a course on space law and all the regulations and things like that you have to worry about if you're going to be operating in space. And we'll learn more about that course and all about the subject here, because when you look up into the night sky, you probably don't really consider that somebody might be liable if one satellite budges into another and who's responsible for that and who actually owns the planets if somebody lands on a planet and all these kind of mind-boggling things and what happens if another life force comes from deep in space and wants to take over what are the rules well lauren hopefully is going to help us out lauren welcome to the podcast um start by telling us a bit about this area of space law and just a, in a nutshell um what sort of things are you covering? All right. Hi, Ian. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. So I'm just down the road from you in Newcastle. And uh, yeah, we, we work on space law, policy, politics, uh, basically the governance of space. So like you say, how we can kind of keep things going uh, in a very crowded orbit and on the way to the moon and Mars and other places. So just quickly to say that First of all, there is international space law. It's not a lot, but we do have a few treaties. Uh, the most important one everyone should know is the Outer Space Treaty of 1967. And that lays out kind of the foundation of what you can and cannot do in space and on celestial bodies. And celestial bodies for us can mean the moon, Mars, asteroids, comets, and any other place you'd like to land. So uh, we've got this and it was kind of created in a sense to hope that we don't have um, the Cold War in space, a continuation of war into space. So the first treaty, again, coming through in the 1950s and entering into force in 1967, is so that the US and the then Soviet Union would make sure that they could use space peacefully and not make it part of the Cold War agenda. Um, I think what's really important here for everyone is that Article 1 says that space and celestial bodies is for everyone. It's for all humankind. So we take it a bit like the high seas or Antarctica, that this is somewhere that cannot be owned. There's no sovereign jurisdiction. Just because we have American flags on the moon does not mean that America owns the moon in any way. So there is definitely um, an understanding that this is a, this is a play, an environment for everyone. And now that includes, you know, we have satellites from commercial actors, academia, and there's even amateur use for astronomy and other purposes. So we're, we're starting to expand the scope of what is used for space and then why do we have these laws? Well, the laws are mostly for the states. So the UK is bound by this treaty, the US, Russia, China, etc., bound by this treaty. But then they bring these these international laws down to their national policies and legislation. So here in the UK, there are two documents, the Outer Space Act of 1986 and the Space Industry Act of 2018. And that guides how the UK is able to utilize space, not only as a government and a civil operation, but also for commercial actors as well. So that means that each state then has an obligation to protect this use of space for everyone through their national space laws. So we have international space law and we have national space law, which has started as far back as the 1950s to ensure that we are peacefully 
exploiting, exploring, and utilizing space for the benefit of everyone. I hope that answers in a nutshell. We've got for a reason. <laughs> it's, it's, it's also, uh, the irony is not lost on me that Dan is, is doing this interview wearing a Star Wars uh, top as well, uh, so, which, which of course is not allowed, Dan. Uh, there, there, it's, 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 we come in peace, you see, uh, to guard against uh, Darth Vader and the, uh, and, and the evil intruders. Um, no. So, um, no Star Wars. Yeah. One of the immediate things that is, is above us uh, is. A lot of satellites. There's a lot, a lot of um, space equipment flying around. Some of which are useful to us in our everyday lives. Some of which are useful to um, governments, or some of which are useful to nobody because they're they're junk. They've been there for years, decades, even potentially they will be there a, a lot longer than that, and they're just orbiting round now, just pieces of uh, iron, tin, aluminium, whatever they may be made of, uh, floating around there, and and of course their hazards as well so if you put something in space what are the what are your responsibilities if you are a, either a private individual or a government and you're launching a satellite that satellite could be there for over 100 years for example long after it's 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 used by date and it stays in there because it's very hard to get these things down so tell us about that side of, of things and the responsibilities on someone uh, and and who who you know, who, whose responsibility is it when you launch this satellite that may stay there for centuries even? Absolutely. So first of all, unfortunately, Dan, you cannot have Star Wars because Article 4 of the Outer Space Treaty says you cannot place in orbit or around the Earth or on celestial bodies any kinds of weapons of mass destruction. So we've cancelled out the weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> the Star Wars trilogy went on far too long. It only needed to go on for five minutes. Star Wars... <laughs> I want to invite. I want to take take ownership of space. Well, you can't. Article four says you can't. Fair enough. I will go to the pub, and that would have been it. Yeah. So, so I kind of put it down on things, and I'm like, well, you can't do this, can't do this. But there's a lot of things you can do, especially in the name of exploration, utilization, and now we're looking towards exploitation with space resources. But that's a different story, for perhaps a different day, even. So, yes, um, as I mentioned before, you've got states that are responsible. States again are countries responsible at the international level, and then it's on the national regulation to then. I get regulate your commercial actors, your educational actors, your your non-governmental actors as it is. So if you are launching into low Earth orbit, which is arguably around 100 kilometers at the start, there's not a fixed line. That's a whole other legal debate as well. Where does space even begin? We don't know. There's no clear answer. Every country wants a different answer. So roughly where a satellite starts with physics coming in, where a satellite can continuously hold an orbit, we could argue is where space begins, which is low Earth orbit. And it goes up to about 2,000 kilometers, and then we continue on into different orbits from there. Um, the next would be medium Earth orbit, which I sometimes call middle Earth orbit, because for some reason I feel like that's the place where Lord of the Rings should be taking place. But no, it is medium Earth orbit, not middle Earth orbit. And then you go on to, to the geostationary orbit, where we have those big bus satellites that are helping us with telecommunications and all kinds of fun things like this. So essentially, we've got different orbits doing different things. But yes, low Earth orbit is congested, contested, competitive. It is where you've heard about in all the news, Elon Musk sends all his Starlink satellites. That's where we have OneWeb. That's where we have lots of things. So if you are an actor, no matter if you're state or non-state, you will get a launch provider, which means you have a launch contract that allows you to, as like we do on an airplane, we bring our suitcase, 
we, we put ourselves on the plane and then we go to our destination. Same with rocket launches. You pay for a certain amount of payload and then they deploy your satellite once they get into orbit. From there, then you will have a mission control and some sort of operational center that keeps track of what's happening with your satellite. It's called space situational awareness, kind of like air traffic control, making sure we know where things are and what, that they're not going to collide with each other. And this will should take you through the mission life. And then at the end, we have called end of life procedures, which are becoming a bigger thing now because of all the debris. And it's thinking about how to then bring the satellite back down and it burns upon re-entry. And so it then is kind of destroyed as it will as it enters the Earth's atmosphere, or is it shoved out to what we call a graveyard orbit, which is far, far out, so that then it can just sit there in, in, a, in a non-obtrusive area of the Earth's orbit and not get into the way of active satellites. So you've got some different options about that. Yes, we do have debris. That is a different discussion and that is a different sort of regulation that's not binding at the moment. But for a satellite, you have liability convention, which is holding you liable if there is any incident in space or to someone on Earth. There's different types of liabilities. There's a registration process. So you register your satellite not only with your country that is responsible, but also through the United Nations so that there's a log of what's up there and what they're doing and what altitude they're at and how, how long they should be there and what they might be doing, so to speak. And we have an international treaty on registration as well. And so if we have the perfect world, all of these satellites should be registered, monitored, and then deorbited in an active, let's say, um, if it's a 25 year process for the satellite, within 25 years, it should then be out of the way. Now that's not currently what's happening in some cases, but we are working towards this with what we call soft law, or non-binding guidelines to help us think about how to handle debris and to encourage the long-term sustainability of Earth's orbit. So in that sense, you have the, the government kind of ensuring that you're following protocols and following the law, as well as certain international and national regulations to kind of keep you in check. Most are binding, but there are some that are voluntary and we're really pushing to be responsible actors through the implementation of these voluntary aspects, such as making sure that you then bring your satellite down in a timely manner, or that you try not to create more debris, or that you make sure not to harmfully interfere with other satellites. Now, to put it in context, there were 3,000 satellites, I think, there or thereabouts orbiting Earth, weren't there, a few years ago. And now Elon Musk is doing Starlink. Uh, there are other similar projects going on, but just taking Elon Musk as, as the example, just, just for context, he's looking to put 42,000 satellites in space, uh, which is, is going to be a big, big deal. So... How do you regulate that and how do we manage the night sky so that we don't just look up and see a sky full of Elon Musk's Starlink, uh, you know, blocking our view of, of the universe that we, that we know and love? Because that, that could happen and you can see some of the Starlink satellites occasionally now. So how's that been regulated? So first things first, um, there I use this lovely UK company called Seradata. They help me kind of keep an eye on what's actively up in, in orbit. Um, so I use that for my research. And currently there's over 5,000 active satellites in low Earth orbit. And just to put uh, it in perspective, over 4,000 of those are from the US jurisdiction, most of them being Starlink. 
just to kind of paint a little picture here. Now, Starlink isn't the only constellation in low Earth orbit. There are many other constellations. It is by far the biggest and it is growing. I think he, I've read in the news something like 60 satellite batches at a time. So constantly just kind of putting them up to increase the number and to increase the, the opportunity to, for, for people to use this, this service because of the low latency of low Earth orbit, you can have a better connection essentially. So, so if we look at it this way and we think about how states again are responsible for these non-state actors as well, the US has quite a burden with uh, over 4,000 satellites that they need to monitor and regulate and maintain in a low Earth orbit. So that's the first thing. So yes, um, we do pick on Elon Musk a bit, but Starlink is the, the largest constellation up there. There are others. Um, there's another one, OneWeb, which is part of something from the UK. That is another large constellation, but it is something along the lines of a few hundred. So you can kind of see that this is a growing interest, but it, it, it's still kind of the front runner is, is Starlink. So, so what that means is that You've got um, regulations and you've got licensing procedures and insurance and all these things going through U.S. regulations for Starlink, which then is registered to the U.N. and that everything is trickled down from these international laws I was telling you about. So the U.S. is responsible for these satellites that are going up for, on his behalf at the international level. Um, yeah, so then you've got you've got debris as well. And what we like I was saying before, what we have seen as a growing trend in the industry is something called space situational awareness, which is much like air traffic control. So we've got uh, the US government has the largest tracking capabilities. The UK does as well. They they kind of work with the US on that um, to think about looking at not only the active satellites but the inactive bits now there's lots of trackable debris we're saying uh you know a few hundred thousand but there's a lot that is untrackable as well so you've got tiny flecks of paint that you can't really track now a lot of the the debris you also don't know whose it is because it may not have a registered something on every piece uh, there are a lot of boosters and rocket pieces, and there there are some satellites that have been destroyed from anti-satellite testing. Um, however, it's hard to know whose is whose and what's what. So this responsibility issue for space debris has become quite tricky because you don't want to have an issue of you you want to clean that environment, but then you have someone upset that you've, oh, you've taken my piece of satellite. I didn't ask you to. So we're really con conscious of how we're going to regulate the current debris Whereas now the focus is also on try to make measures so that you can prevent debris, have an end of life procedure plan, try to make your satellite in components that, you know, if there were to be an issue, they're not going to break into thousands and thousands of pieces, you know, try, try to think about how you're going to communicate with other actors when you're near other satellites and things like this. So we've got these, these ways of communication, of, of knowledge sharing, of kind of thinking about new tech and how we can design the satellites. It's all kind of going into this process because the regulations are voluntary at the moment, but we are really pushing that these need to be how you are as a responsible actor in space. So that's one side. So the other side is, from an astronomy perspective, yes, we can see that then low Earth orbit is quite congested, not only to get into low Earth orbit, but to also get, as you said, satellites that want to go deeper into space. So there is a bit of concern about that is the entry point to space. We need to be mindful of that as well. But it's also 
trying to see through it to look deep into space with your telescopes. So I know that Starlink had tried to cover their satellites in some sort of darker paint, if you will, or some sort of darker material. They had conversations with astronomers. It, it seems to be that maybe that worked, maybe it didn't, but there, there, are, there are discussions being had, and there are discussions being had at the international level. So in Vienna, they have the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Use of Outer Space, where these treaties and these, these voluntary guidelines are created by the, the states that are there. And we have now got a working group um, at different international levels talking about light pollution of the night sky, talking about constellations, talking about the sustainability of low Earth orbit. And that ties back down to then the use for astronomy as well. Because we do see that not only is astronomy important for science and exploration, but it's also important for indigenous people. So there's now more voices at the table, a more diverse group of people at the table trying to, to just say, how should we regulate and what does that look like and how can we think about all the different perspectives and not just the satellite operator or not just the government. So it is kind of starting to trickle out. There are no set guidelines or laws at the moment, but there are discussions about how we use things like the Outer Space Treaty to push for if space is for all humankind, that should include ground-based astronomy. That should include indigenous people that have a connection to the moon or to space. That should include uh, children that want to have a wonder about space. So we're starting to in include a broader audience in that. That's not a regulation. That's just kind of us pushing what it means to be a responsible space actor in today's society. So there are regulations for the satellites themselves. We've got some voluntary things for space debris, and we're now looking at how we can be responsible people for everyone to enjoy space. No, I think that's good that it's been regulated and good that the, the dark skies are being protected as well. I and mean, obviously we're doing a lot of work here on Earth and in the dark sky parks to try and um, minimise light pollution. So the last thing you need is somebody pumping up a load of um, satellites into space and just ruining it for everyone anyway and, and rendering it all pointless, really. Tell us about the course at Northumbria University, because it is one of the few places, as I mentioned earlier, that you can learn more about space law. Um, obviously, you would think... Um, Maybe you will be situated nearer to a launch pad or some mission control. But uh, no, Northumbria University is the place to go to, to learn about space law and um, quite a unique course you're running there. Tell us about it. OK, so, um, yeah, so in Northumbria University uh, here in Newcastle, we have the Northumbria Law School. And it's all thanks to Professor Chris Newman, who um, was hired on to build up a cyberspace telecom AI LLM framework. So we're not only just talking about space, but we're also looking at how space and cyber and AI and robotics all comes together with the law and with how we're going to govern all of these different uh, exciting new tech areas. So we offer a one-year LLM program. Um, you can take a cyber law LLM or a space law LLM, but they run together. There's mutual classes, again, where you get to also think about killer robots and, and AI and all the other futuristic stuff that goes on with, with space and cyber. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so then um yeah you have the one year you get the LM and what's what's great about the program as I've been teaching on it now for 2 years is that we get a lot of uh 
mixed. We get some home students here from the UK. We get a lot of international students, especially international students where they maybe don't have a cyber or space law in their own country. So we, it's something called capacity building. They come and they study with us and they learn and then they can go back and inform government or industry in their home country as well. And they can kind of learn off of each other. We have lots of debates in workshop. It gets very exciting. I try to do a little bit of model UN with them to show them how these things are happening at the UN. Um, and it's really nice to see how students that are interested in cyber and the students that are interested in space come together and realize that they're actually interested in both as well as AI once they finish the program. So we've got a nice team now. Um, on top of that, we've also got space medicine, heliophysics, and other types of space activities at Northumbria University. It's not just in the law department. So we've got a space team, if you will, that's ever growing at the university too. Um, another big subject at the moment is AI, and it rears its head um, a number of times uh, now in in the news and, and how it's affecting things. But I'm wondering, in, in respect of space law, um, with you know the the onset of, of AI, um, obviously more advanced in the space world, um, are there any laws around that specifically about AI or robotic space exploration and 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 how that could be regulated? So actually, even though it seems maybe a little archaic now, but the, the rovers on the moon are essentially robots and they are semi-autonomous and they have things they're programmed to do, but they're also sent to explore certain areas and kind of see what they need to do based on what they're finding. Uh, we're now starting to think about autonomy in satellite constellations and satellites themselves. Um, you know, AI perhaps helping us with tracking and and satellite observation could be something of the future hopefully more beneficial aspects would come from from ai but the concern on a on a cyber side would then be you know as we've as we've seen are there ways to hack into satellites hack into mission controls how are we saving the massive amounts of data that are coming from satellites on a daily basis that directly impact our lives so now there's also the idea of you know not only understanding how to process all that data, perhaps AI can help us process it, but can AI also check for vulnerabilities in the system and ensure that we don't have any cybersecurity issues down the road? And I guess there's a lot of privacy laws regarding the, the, the equipment involved as well, because, of course, you know you only have to go on Google and, and you can see your garden or your next-door neighbor's garden. So they have access, the, the people, whether that's Google, whether that, whoever is running these things, obviously it's via these satellites, though, they have access to a lot more information about our lives than we are ever in control of, don't they? So it's, there's the, the privacy side of it as well. Well, it's also pri uh, making sure that we can control the privacy for intellectual property as well. So another course that we teach on the program is intellectual property as well as data protection because we do see that these things are important. It's not only important to think about how we can protect ourselves, but how the satellite systems, and by satellite system I even mean the receiving um, you know, sta ground stations and all the mission control and all this as well as the links between how we can protect and make sure that the data that's coming from a satellite is going where it's supposed to and protect the intellectual property of these owners and their technology as well. And so is this um, a fairly unique course in the world? Do you, do you attract people from all over or is this uh, something that happens in a few places across the UK? How, how unique is your particular course at, at Northumbria and, and what do people then go on to, to do or where do they apply the the uh, you know the, the the skills gained in this course 
Yeah, so, so our course is a bit unique in that we, like I say, we offer the idea of space law plus cyber, AI, robotics. Um, most places do an air and space law type program. Uh, there are other opportunities to do maybe space security in a political science realm in the UK. But in terms of what we do here, we're kind of front running this in the UK. There are so, there's a few universities in different countries. Obviously, the US has quite a few. But again, that's more of an air and space focus. We've decided to take a bit of a shift to the cyber AI with space focus. And afterwards, you know, as I say, with our inter we get international students from a lot of different places, uh, as well as home students from here in the UK. And a lot of students will then go back and like I say, they'll work for their government, they'll work for industry, they might be lawyers in, the, in their own right, and then now they're going to be able to specialize in cyber and space law as well. Um, some may then choose to go and work for their space agencies, or for if, you're a, if they're a student from here, they could potentially then, you know, try for the, the ESA programs, UK space agency, think tanks, um, different organizations, there's a lot of opportunities to be a space law specialist because a space law specialist doesn't mean that you have to be a space lawyer you can be and we have great space lawyers that deal with contracts on launching and insurance and all of these things but then there are those like myself that we then go back and become legal academics we do all of this through academia or through think tanks or through organizations so there's lots of different ways you can now take a space law degree and apply it to work for a business a government an organization or come back into academia Sky is not the limit anymore. <laughs> no, no, sky is not the limit. That's a good, that's, yeah, that's a very good thing. Where does the sky end and space start? That's another thing we haven't quite got to the bottom of. Um, Dan, there is a, a, Kilder is part of a network, isn't it, that's, that's looking out for, for space debris um, re-entering the atmosphere and, and keeping an eye on, on a few things uh, up there as well. Maybe you want to uh, just talk about that. Yeah, so just uh, as, as you were mentioning earlier, there's a, a few projects which are looking at all of this moving debris and satellites and stuff. And uh, we have one on site called Loki, uh, which looks at low Earth orbiting satellites and space debris. And um, and I think it looks at geostationary satellites occasionally as well. It's run by a company called Raytheon Norse, which are part of the Raytheon group. Um, so, yeah, that, that we do have an active site uh on 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 site <laughs> which is doing all of that um we, we we don't know what really happens in that shed it's quite a, a secretive little shed that we can't talk about um <laughs> but that's the kind of headline <laughs> and is it so, yeah. true that kielder is a dark official dark sky dark and quiet sky yeah so it's a it's a the largest expanse of protected dark skies in europe so that's something that they also discuss at the UN, you know, how we can continue to protect these dark and quiet skies. What does that mean for ground-based astronomy? And on the flip side, as you just mentioned, if then that also offers us a chance to watch for space debris and watch for satellites because it is in the right kind of environment that it's so dark and you can crisply see what's in in space that only then helps us understand how to communicate and avoid collisions and to think about how we can then um, track to make sure everyone is safe in space as well. So it's great that we can now bring these two things together, the enjoyment of space from a dark forest, but also we can track for the safety and sustainability of the orbit as well. I'm just interested as to who, um, like if you had a problem and, and you were going to take somebody to court, where, where, would that, where would that happen? Is there like an international space well, court? <laughs> yes, 
and no. The first thing is in the liability convention, which does deal with fault-based liability in space, we have the idea that you can call upon to create a, a kind of like a, a board that then moderates or mediates a discussion. Now, we've never used this in practice. The only time we've ever had an incident that needed to be discussed in a large scale way was when a satellite, a Russian satellite crashed into Canada and it had radioactive particles. Now, this was done all through diplomacy. It was all done outside of court, all done through diplomatic channels. And typically that's what happens first because they're registered internationally. The two states can have discussion with each other to see if they can't come to a peaceful resolution in a diplomatic sense. You can call upon the liability convention to bring forth some sort of arbitration, but there is also the International Court of Justice, which has some small documentation on space, where then if we really needed to, we could call upon the ICJ in the Netherlands to lend a hand as well. But so far, everything's been done peacefully through diplomatic channels outside of court. That is what is uh, for us space law people, do we want to have something happen so we know what it will look like in practice or do we just want to hy be hypothetical? So we do something called space law games where we do exactly that. What happens if this satellite crashes with this satellite? What are the processes? Do they just need mediation? Does it need to go to court? Does this need to be done through diplomatic channels? So we try to like, pre it's like war gaming, but through with, with law <laughs> to try to work out scenarios and best ways to go through with that because currently, we don't have any case law. We don't have any precedent for something like this. Everything has been done very mature and diplomatically, and hopefully we get to keep it that way. But if not, we want to be prepared and know what we can do for those situations. I think this is because there's no alien race being discovered to head space court yet. Because um, that's how, I, for some reason, that's how I envisage it in my brain. It's just this, this weird tentacle-like alien with a massive head. Who's like the judge? I think it's like the bar at the end of the universe, and they're playing La Cantina on the way in. And there's, yeah, I think I think it would be like that. Yeah. But uh, I think that's the other thing as well, isn't it? I mean, what happens? Supposing we are not the 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 only beings in in space, and obviously that's a separate discussion. But uh, supposing from out of nowhere, from from behind a planet we haven't been looking at, um, some other creatures come along and lay claim to uh, to Mars or jupiter or, or good luck with that one if they do but you know uh what, what or whatever what where, where do we then sit because we, we might be sitting here in, in a couple of decades from now and and um you know another another alien being uh comes and lays claim to mars or the moon and and we we're sort of thinking we've been sat here playing by the rules all along and then what? Yeah, it is something that is thought about, maybe not in the UN yet, but it is something that is discussed in that, you know, hopefully with, with as you know, when Voyager went out, we sent our vinyl record, <laughs> that's dated, but we sent out our vinyl record with our coordinates and sketches of what a human being looks like and music and things. So if they do find us, perhaps then we can direct them to the, the Committee on the Peaceful Use of Outer Space to start showing them well, here are our treaties. What have you got? Should we think about something that's a little more collective? Um, so, yeah, for now, I guess we have to think about we're not as as excitingly forward as science fiction wants us to be. But, <laughs> but in, the, in the chance that we do come to, you know, Star Wars, Star Trek and name your favorite show, uh, pick your poison here then perhaps the best way is to hopefully be able to find ways to communicate with each other first, if we can communicate with each other, and talk about how we regulate and see how they regulate and see if we can't find 
some common area of interest, but you never know. Maybe they don't want to play nice with us, so we don't want to play nice with them. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I, lo- I love the idea of, uh, of, 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 you know, alien visitors disembarking their spaceship and first being shown, well, welcome to Earth, but now watch the induction video. I think that would be, uh, you know, the way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Have you got a landing contract? At least don't make anything on your way out. <laughs> um, yeah, so, there, so there's a lot. Actually, there are some conferences that do think about this, the juxtaposition between science reality and science fiction. And there are some people that think about what does that look from a legal perspective? What does that look like from a governance perspective? You know, how are we going to be diplomatic about this? There are movies, as you may have seen, Arrival and other things like this. I mean, we even have movies, you know, that have kind of blown us. Like, gravity started getting us thinking about, oh, space debris. Yes, space is an environment. Yes, we should protect it. The Martian, we're like, oh, actually, yeah, we do need to think about how to grow food and how to be sustainable uh, on different planets. So there's a lot that we can think about from science fiction, but it will take, I think, a lot of uh, discussion. I can mention that um, the, the long-term sustainability guidelines, which are voluntary, non-binding, took 10 years in the UN to come to an agreement. Now, if we are also considering alien differences and clash of culture to the mega extent as well as language, 10 years might not be enough. So just keep in mind, this is a, this is a slow process. <laughs> Okay, yeah. well, let's hope it never comes to that and uh, and everything's fine, eh? We will hope so. <laughs> okay, Lauren Napier, thanks very much for joining us on the Kielder Observatory podcast and thanks to you for listening as well. We'll be back with another episode very soon. In the meantime, find out about everything that's happening at Kielder Observatory, including what's happening in the night skies this month at kielderobservatory.org and of course book your sessions as well to come up and see us at some point over the course of the summer or indeed beyond all those sessions available now all the information you need kielderobservatory.org thanks once again for listening and don't forget to check out some of our previous episodes as well where you can learn about all sorts of things including volcanoes on the moon and uh, the aurora borealis just to name a couple of topics in the previous episodes and like and subscribe so you don't miss a future episode of the Kielder Observatory podcast.